Let's start with a question this morning. Have you ever been, have you ever had somebody suddenly and unpromptedly ask you something about your Christian faith? I think these encounters of being asked questions about our faith are going to become more frequent in our society as we become more and more post-Christian in our Western world today. And I think the questions that we're going to be facing won't just be limited to, what does it mean to be a Christian? What people are going to ask you is, what are the implications of this faith that you have? Why do you believe what you believe? And I think given the direction that our society is going in today, where it's moving away from Christianity against Christianity, we might feel like that our faith is going to be on trial. Now, when this time comes, will you be ready, willing, and able to meet the charges and the questions that people have for you? And connected to this, will you have the courage to stand on your faith without compromise, even if there's a cost? In our passage today, we're going to see that Paul is going to be put on trial, and I think that there are so many things that we can learn from Paul as he's here, because what is happening to Paul may very uh, very well one day happen to us. Now, we may not be put into a physical courtroom or go before leaders and rulers like Paul is, but we might experience people coming up to you, accusing you, asking you hard questions, wanting to know, to get to the bottom of your faith, Why do you believe what you believe? And so this is the main message that I have for us today. The main message that I think that Luke, Luke, the author of this book, is trying to get across is that when our faith is on trial, we must boldly present the truth respectfully, thoughtfully, and without compromise. Now, in the the book of Acts, sorry, currently where we are in Acts 24, Paul is in this place called Caesarea, and he's awaiting trial with Antonio Felix, the governor of Judea and Samaria. And it's here that Paul has to give a defense against the charges that the Jewish leaders are accusing him with. And so the opening section of chapter 24 is really the entrance of these main characters who are about to accuse him. Firstly, the high priest Ananias, and then his legal advocate, Tertullus. Now, Tertullus here, who is the speaker or the lawyer, I guess we would think in our day, has a very well-crafted speech against Paul with many subtle hints about what Tertullus wants Felix, the governor, to do. Namely, he wants Felix to keep the peace by dealing with Paul. And though we can divide Tertullus' speech in several ways, I think the best way to think of it is that he actually makes two accusations against Paul. And we can see this in the next slide, please. So the first accusation that Tertullus makes is that Paul was a plague that infects other people and is trouble for the state. Now, if you think about it, we think people think of other people like this today, right? There are these people who infect other people with these thoughts, with these ways of getting them to... Uh, to do things and, 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 and do things that, that, that basically are bad for the state. And this is kind of the, the thing that Tertullus is saying about, about Paul. His complaint is that not that Paul is a direct threat to Rome, 
But what Paul actually is, is he's a nuisance to it. Rome was very sensitive to these foreign religious groups and sects and the impact that they had in arousing or rousing the people in an uproar. And Governor Felix, the person who this is going out to, was actually known as somebody who would deal with people or leaders like this and deal with them without pity. Now, the second, second accusation that they make is that Paul is the leader of a sect who threatens the peace of Jewish people and it desecrated the temple. Can we just go to the next slide? Sorry, go back, go back a slide. Interesting, okay. Uh, Paul is a leader of a sect who threatened to the peace of Jewish people and desecration. So, uh, here Paul is painted as someone who caused unrest among Jews with his belief. And the Romans despised or, or desired actually peace in their regions, right? What they really wanted was there just not to be uproar, not to be a lot of people fighting. They just wanted pe people to be peaceable, okay. And, but if Paul had actually defiled the temple, as they claimed, then Paul would be a troublemaker and one who threatened the peace of this region. So again, not, in, not, not a threat to Rome, but a nuisance to Rome and one who caused trouble in the regions where Rome desired peace. Now, how does Paul respond to these specific accusations? And the way he responds is that though these words are well-worded, there's very little truth to the accusations that they made against Paul. Paul argues that, or Paul says that he was there 12 days and not a single incident happened or occurred, and he had actually gone up there just to worship. He didn't dispute with anybody. He didn't desecrate the temple. In fact, he asks, where are those people, those original Jewish people who accused me at the temple of desecrating it? Where are they today? Why are they not making this accusation in person? And so Paul says that there is actually no proof of any kind to the claims that they have said. There's something to this encounter here for us as Christians that we need to pay careful attention to. And that is that we, like Paul, may be accused falsely, lied about, misrepresented, slandered. I think we often actually see this in our, in our own day, right? It's very easy just to turn on your TV, go on social media, and within the first, I don't know, five or ten minutes on social media, or you might wait an hour on TV, there's something poor that is being said about Christians today. Some of the things that I actually found frustrating when I, when I look at it, let me just give you two examples. Number one is that sometimes, for whatever reason, they, they put the worst of the people that call themselves Christians as representative as, of, a, of us all. I really dislike that because I think that it makes these people who, who I basically don't have very much agreement with as somebody who represents me. And you might feel this way as well. The second one is this depiction that just because I disagree with somebody, then I must have contempt or hate for that person. I, I really dislike this because that's not true, right? We too are sinners. We too have been saved by grace. We know the depth of our own sin. We can't come to these other people with these strong hand, the strong handedness and say, look how bad you are, look how great I am, because we know the depth of our own sin. These images of Christians just don't represent us as we see in media today. And I think the Bible has prepared us to not be surprised when this happens. 
Jesus anticipates this issue when he talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. The interesting thing is that this kind of, these kind of misrepresentations, this kind of um, accusation against Christians is not one that we just face here today in this modern world, but it's one that all Christians through all times have faced. To give just a quick example, in the early church, Christians were accused or blamed for a fire that Emperor Nero had started. They accused you and I, Christians of the past, of cannibalism. And the reason being is because we talk about this idea that we take the body and blood of Christ. Another misrepresentation that, that they heard in the first century is that they said that these Christians must have incestuous relationships because they're, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And this made the people of Rome, the people in the first century, very suspicious of Christians. And I suspect probably is what makes people suspicious of Christians today. Now, the point that I'm trying to make here is that this kind of accusation, this kind of misrepresentation is normal fare for Christians throughout all time. And what is true for our spiritual successors will be true for us. So then, we should be ready to be accused falsely and wrongly, but how should we actually speak to these accusations? Because if they're coming, we need to know how do we talk through them? How do we work them out? How do we have this conversation? And I think Paul's defense gives us a really helpful example of how to face these accusations. And that's what we're going to focus on today and what we can learn in, these, in his situation we can apply to our own. Let's go to the next slide. The grand scope of Paul speaking, and the first thing that we need to learn is that Paul looked to please man rather than God. Paul speaks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. To me, this is the very first contrast we see in this passage. Tertullus here, the, the advocate for the Jewish leaders, is speaking in a way that is most pleasing to the governor of Felix, Governor Felix. He really takes on his appreciation. Right in Chinese, we have to we have some very strong terms for those people who you know kiss shoes, people who who basically love to kiss the ring, people who uh, you know really take it on hard. And that really is what Tertullus is doing here. That he is trying to win the approval of Governor Felix, and the reason being is because he wants Governor Felix to agree with this charge, right, to actually punish Paul. But as you actually look at Paul's address here, though he has respect for Felix, his focus is on outlying his faith, making a defense, and revealing the gospel, and ultimately to bring glory to God. Now, how do we please God in our speech? And we please God by, by speaking in a way that the Bible prescribes for us to do. And so this morning, I have six major points of how we should speak to these accusations that please God. 
The first one that I have for you, and I, I hope this is not surprising, is please do not answer evil with evil. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. I think it would have been very easy for Paul to repay evil here, and, and I would probably argue that for most of us, our first inclination when someone reviles us or speaks evil against us is, is to hit them right back, right? To clap back at them, to let them know that they need to know that what they said is wrong and that we're, not, we're just not going to stand for that. And I think we could expect Paul should do the same thing. But in Paul's speech towards them, where he has every opportunity to be fiery and to be angry and to accuse them and to pay back evil for evil, we don't get a hint of this in his speech towards Felix or to the Jewish leaders, even though the Jewish leaders want to take his life. It's been a long way for me. This has been an area for me that I found it so hard to get around as a Christian because when I was not a Christian, one of the things I hated most was when people would say something to you and you wouldn't say something back. I could never let that stand as a non-Christian because there's no way I would let you disrespect me like that without you hearing an earful back from me. And after being a Christian for, I think, over a decade now, I think this is an area that I've gotten better at, but still to this day, maybe not when it happens to me, but when it happens to other Christians, especially other pastors, it really still irks me. And so this, it's, it's really interesting because recently I had this, uh, this encounter that God put into my life to remind me of this passage where I, I met up with um, a local pastor, and he was telling me, how in, that basically in his recent kind of encounter with some people in his own church, they said the most vile and terrible things to him directly to his face. Things that I, even as a non-Christian I could never stand for. And as he was talking about what they had said to him, I just felt my blood begin to rise. It boiled a little bit. And I, and I basically was, was, was ready to tell him, you need to say something to this person. You need to tell them that they're wrong, that they're crazy. What they're saying is completely out of line to put them in their place, to tell them that this is unacceptable. But this pastor, who I respect to the utmost, never did any of that. Now certainly there is a place for that. But this pastor was so humble in his situation and he answered the, this person's evil with such understanding and grace that it really put me to shame. And I, I love this pastor for reminding me of this message. And I hope for you that you'll be reminded that our first inclination is not, as I said, to clap back or to answer these people who revile you, but to love them, to be understanding and gracious, to be fair-handed in your approach to them. Here's the second one. The second one is to allow the Spirit's boldness to give us confidence and courage in these situations. This is something that we have seen all through the book of Acts and something that I hold very deeply because I think it's something that we need today is that this boldness comes from the Lord. It is a boldness that is fully empowered by the Spirit and is not based on a person's personality. And we need this because without boldness, we're never going to speak to situations or to answer accusations or to preach the gospel. 
This is seen throughout the book of Acts in the way that people who speak or act on God's behalf are able to feel or be fearless and courageous even in the face of danger. This is the kind of boldness that we need to deal with this. And, and again, I want to make very clear here that this is not a personality trait. Boldness is not the personality trait in which we're talking about here. It is a spiritual, spirit-born boldness and that you can be timid and still be bold. A great example here is the Apostle Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, we are told that Paul's normal disposition is timidity. Yet when he speaks on trials, we see him throughout the book of Acts engaging with rulers and authorities and Jewish leaders and those who are hostile to him. He has this supernatural boldness. And if we're Christians today and we have this spirit, it is the same spirit that was in work in Paul. We too will be given this boldness to act. The third one I have for you here this morning is speak with respect and gentleness. Now, we're going to touch on this verse a little bit later, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, we are told to give a defense of our faith with gentleness and respect. And, and I think in this section, Paul really does a really good job of outlining what that looks like. Paul shows a healthy respect for Felix. He doesn't take it on particularly hard, but shows that this is a per, per, person that is, is of honor, so I'm going to show them the right honor. But on, on the flip side, he doesn't actually use flowery language, right? He doesn't go over the top and, and tries to be colorful, but he does speak gently to the issues that he's being accused of, and he isn't harsh against his accusers or to Governor Felix. Number four, that Paul speaks thoughtfully. This is the main argument in, this, in his speech and certainly demonstrates Paul's thoughtfulness in his response. So verses 14 to 16 and 21, but this I confess to you, the according to the way which they call the sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God with these men themselves, accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Verse 21, other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul correctly identifies the issue that he's on trial for, and the reason is because that he is here because of what he believes. So Paul here gives a defense of what he actually believes, so people understand what exactly he's on trial for. Paul argues that his faith, which is instead of thought of as a sect, actually holds to many of the key beliefs as the Jewish leaders here. Paul says that, I believe in the same hope in God as you do, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we believe the law and the prophets as you do, and we have a final hope in the resurrection as you do. This last part might seem a little bit odd about this res resurrection, but because we as Christians today talk a lot about the idea or the concept of resurrection as part of our Christian faith. And it might surprise you that in the first century era, many Jewish leaders also held on to the same belief. Firstly, because it's a, it's a concept in my mind that's taught very, very clearly, though not very much in the Old Testament. But one clear example of this is in Daniel chapter 12, verse two, where it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
For the early Jewish leaders, many of them had written or just kind of pre-assumed that there's going to be a resurrection of the, of, of the dead. And in fact, many Jewish Pharisees believed, or they did believe, in the resurrection. Now, all this together then, Paul is trying to demonstrate that he is not a faction that was different from the Jewish faith. Rather, he was of a faith that was in line with true Jewish beliefs. Now, as we kind of look at how Paul responds here, his response is thoughtful. That he, and, he, and, he, and he answers, he doesn't just answer the charges of being in a sect, but he goes far beyond that to show, no, we believe what you believe, and we believe even much more than that. This kind of thoughtfulness that Paul shows is not one that comes easy. It certainly doesn't come in a vacuum. And these words that he says here, this defense that he gives, is one clearly is showing of a person who has deeply thought about their faith, has clearly thought about how do I make defense of it. And, and the way that Paul has prepared himself for this response, or prepared himself to make a defense, was that his entire life was devoted to the scriptures. Even before he became a Christian, Paul was already a Jewish Pharisee, one who had spent his entire life training and, and reading and supposedly knowing the scriptures and knowing about faith. But more than that, after accepting Christ, he spends, as Galatians chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, tells us three more years to studying the word or studying Christ. This is a man whose entire life is about the word of God, and he's always interweaving the on-the-ground realities of the church with the eternal reality of, realities of God's word. And so I think it's safe to say, and the reason why Paul can give such a response is because he's a thoughtful, biblically immersed man of God. Is that you and I today? Do we have that same immersion to the scriptures, that same love, that same passion, that same singular focus in our, in our study? Do we have these realities of God so ingrained in us, written on our hearts and in our minds and on our hands, that we just know them and they come out like, like, a, like a fountain that just flows water? My worry today, and probably the painful question that I have for us today, is, is our understanding of the Bible only a mile long, but an inch deep. What this speaks of is a knowledge where we know many things about the Bible, but we don't know any of those things deeply. And I think if we don't know any of these things deeply, then we have a problem, because if we don't know them deeply, it's impossible to give a real response like Paul gives. And if we don't know it deeply, how can we ever explain something in a captivating way? I have another related question here. Is your immersion of the Bible so deep or deep enough to answer questions like this for people? Do you know deeply about the nature of sin to help people understand their own sin? Do you know deeply the salvation that Christ offers that it helps people to see their deepest needs are met in Christ? Do you know deeply why it is better for a Christian to believe now and bear fruit now than to wait on their deathbed to have salvation later? 
These are some of the most fundamental questions we should be prepared for to give a defense for because these are questions that will come up as we preach the gospel. Now, the expectation here is not that we're going to speak like Paul or that we're going to be like Christian theologians like the recently deceased R.C. Sproul. However, in your own ability, in your own individual way, can you help people to thoughtfully see the biblical truth? Now, I completely understand if you aren't here today for whatever reason. But is your goal to continue to grow in this area, to expand your knowledge, your experience of God, so you are an ever-flowing fountain of biblical truth to all those who ask for the hope that you have? And it's okay if you're a fountain that only has little squirts of water that come out that you're just barely working. That's okay. But it's not okay, in my mind, to stay like that forever. Because to me, it just means that there's, there's a detraction, there's a detachment from the wonder and the beauty of God's word in our everyday life. One of the areas that I often see is that we think that biblical knowledge is a product of time. And I disagree with that. Biblical knowledge like this, immersion like this, if this were possible, then all Pharisees would have been like Paul. To me, it's a product of the quality of time that we spend with the scripture, that we spend with the Lord, and the way that we, which we know him, that produces defenses as thoughtful as this. So one of the things I hope that we ask ourselves is, is this our immersion with God, with his word? so that we can be thoughtful like this in our own speech. Number five, Paul here speaks without compromise. Now, this, to me, is very clear and shown throughout this entire section, but it's especially clear in verses 20 through to 26, where just after the trial has happened, Felix and Drusilla, his wife, go to inquire about Paul's faith in Jesus Christ. As it says in verse 24, after some days, Felix came to his wife, Drusilla, who, went, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the exact reason why he did this is not clear. Uh, it could just be that something in that defense made Felix and Drusilla interested in what Paul was saying. It could be that uh, Felix just wanted a second opinion from Drusilla, so he had Drusilla come as well and to listen so that he could make a better judgment, even though he was already quite knowledgeable in the way. We're not exactly quite sure, but we do know how does, Paul does speak to them. And Paul speaks quite pointedly to them, as it says in verse 25, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, this seems kind of odd, right? Like, how is this a lack of compromise? But I think it's important to kind of, kind of read between the lines here. As, as Daryl Bach, who in my mind has written the best commentary on this book, has talked about that when Paul's talking to Drusilla and Felix, it's not generally about, self -right about righteousness or about self-control or about the coming judgment. There's a personal element to the way in he, which he's addressing these issues. What he's really saying is you, Drusilla, Felix, need to be righteous. You need self-control. You need to worry about the coming judgment. And specifically, the area in which he's talking to them here is that there's actually a scandal that people know about between Felix and Drusilla. Felix and Drusilla are married, but 
for them, this is not their first marriage. Drusilla was actually in, a, in, a, in another marriage before, but she was quite unhappy in it, and so she wanted to get into a better marriage. She also craved power, and she finally met Felix. And so what she did was she seduced Felix into making her his wife. And this, to me, makes sense about why Felix was spooked, why Felix was alarmed, because not only was just this hypothetical Christian the way beliefs, and now was spoken about him directly, that he had to act, he had to, he, had to, he, had to, he had to do something about it, and it made him uncomfortable. Now, Paul here could have very much just softened the way he spoke about sin, and I think most of us would here, right? If your life was on the line, if somebody else determined what is going to happen to your life, we probably would soften a little bit about people's sinfulness. But that's not what Paul does. Paul's singular interest here was to please man, sorry, to please God and not man. And he spoke honestly with them about their lack of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment that awaited them if they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ. I think this is very hard and not only hard to do for us, but I think for us that we too must have this kind of speech that is uncompromising about things that pertain to salvation and the faith and repentance that people must have. Now, how does all of this relate back to you and me? And I hope it's clear by now that we are all partakers of the defense of the gospel with Paul. As Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You know, when it comes time to answer questions or comes time to share the gospel, sometimes it's very easy for people to just to give their testimony or to say, just believe in Christ and all these things don't matter. Don't stop asking questions. Just submit your will to the Lord. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul actually interacts with his opponents and their accusations and their faith. And instead of, instead of just giving general words and flower words about Christianity, he makes a thoughtful defense of his beliefs and rightfully handles his opponent's points. This is what it looks like for us to give a defense. And it's actually what we need to do if we wish to become more of a missional community. Now, as many of you know here who have been part of CGC or Chinese Gospel Church for the last couple years, this has been our goal, our mission as a church, that we want to be a missional community that seizes every opportunity to share the gospel. Now, if this is true, then this is what we need today. Because this is how missionaries think like. Missionaries always are thinking about the language, the thoughts, the concerns, the hopes, and the barriers of entry for people that want to become Christians in their own missionary culture and place. And if we think of ourselves as local missionaries here in Toronto, then we need to do the same thing. And we need to be able to answer these questions that they bring before us. We, also, we need to think about what are we saying? What does the Bible say? and to deal with these concerns in a way that brings glory to God. That's really what we're talking about this morning. 
Number six, and my very last point here, I want to make clear that if we follow after the Lord, it doesn't always just mean rainbows and roses. Because even though Paul did everything to please God, this did not acquit him before Felix. As it says in verse 26 to 27, at the same time, he hoped that the money would give him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When tears had elapsed, Felix had succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. There's this irony here. The Felix who inquires about Paul's faith in Christ Jesus and learns about the righteousness of Christians is also the Felix that hopes that Paul would bribe him. And when he doesn't bribe him, he leaves Paul in prison to appease the Jewish leaders. Our last lesson here today is that our hope should not be in human vindication, but in God's vindication to us through the gospel. If you're wondering what vindication means here, it means the act of vindicating something or someone, and this means to clear as from an accusation, an imputation, a suspicion, or the like as, uh, or the like as in the case of vindicating someone's honor, whose name and reputation has been slandered, or false accusation has been made against them. This is a, a quote that I took from somebody else. But vindication is basically how one is cleared from these accusations. And that clearing for us doesn't come from human authorities. And certainly for Paul, he realized that Felix is not the one who is going to clear him. We as Christians will never find vindication on this earth from human authorities or earthly vindication. Because earthly vindication isn't always about what is right. But we certainly can trust the Lord has vindicated us because of the gospel. And this is what drives us to accept the accusations from man because it is God who we look to please and who we look to ultimately vindicate us. Now, why does this matter? Because Paul is told, as we talked about last week, that he is going to go to Rome. Now, we're only in Caesarea. We're still a long way to get to Rome. So he trusts God here to know that God has this greater plan for where I'm to go. And even if I were to die here, it's still to God's greater glory. My hope is not in that men are going to vindicate me, but that God ultimately will. So this is my conclusion this morning. And just like most times, it's going to begin with a question. Are you readying yourself to give a defense for the gospel. Could you go to the last slide, please? If you've spoken this morning, these things are especially, if they're especially done well, are, don't just happen in a vacuum. No one has a deep and robust faith overnight. And that kind of thing is like a field that has been tilled day after day, year after year, to yield what it does. But is it on your mind to be able to make a defense of your faith? Is it on your mind to have this deeper, understanding and experiencing of these Christian doctrines in a way that outflow these beautiful biblical answers. If your heart this morning is to have this kind of faith, to have this kind of robust response, then I would say firstly to pray. Turn to the Lord to give you this depth of faith and relationship. Number two is to read deeply don't read like a duck, all right? When you watch a duck eat, a duck just swallows. They don't chew. 
When you read the Bible, you should do it like you're eating a meal. You should chew, enjoy, taste, meditate, think, make notes. Now, most of you probably don't make notes when you eat. I make notes when I eat. But we should love what we are reading, love what we're, and just enjoying it, understanding it, and just taking it in. And very lastly, I would say, come speak to your leaders and elders about how to go deeper in your Christian faith and how to give better, thoughtful, better, respectful, and uncompromising answers as we go face a world where we're going to face accusation. Amen. I'm going to ask um, our worship team to come up today and to give our response.